If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn it to Mark chapter 10. If you don't, there's one right there in front of you. And I'm on page 1571. Actually, 1570. For the last couple of weeks, I've been preaching through this section in Mark, Mark 9:33 to 10:45, um, which is all about the first becoming last. It's all about the fact that Christian greatness requires that we put aside our selfish ambitions and go to the bottom of the heap. And through that, just like Jesus did before us, we could, we could become great. That's how you become great in the kingdom of God. Um, and so I've preached my way mostly through till 1017. So that's where I'll start today. Uh, a a uh, story that's often called the parable of the, or the story of the rich young ruler. Starting in 1017, it says this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for, a rich, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, children, fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> so let's, let's just get right to it. One of the first things everybody wants to know when they hear that passage of Scripture is, is the command, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven for everyone or just for this guy. All the commentators focus on that. All of us can't help us focus on that. Let's just cut right to the chase. What's the, what's the, what's the answer to that question? Here's my answer to that question. It's not as important as this question, which is, why do we think the answer yes is either preposterous or terrifying? Because if you read that passage and you consider that it could be for you, if you don't believe in God and you're sort of cynical towards things religious, you'll just go, that's just stupid. I mean, that's, that's just crazy. It's preposterous. Or if you are believing, you're just terrified <laughs> that you may have to believe that because you believe. I mean, I don't know about you, but I have a very visceral reaction when I read this story. 
because what, because I experience as an invitation to torture what Jesus apparently thinks is an invitation to comfort. Um, or you could, you could say this about the passage. When I read the passage, did you identify more with the rich young man or with Peter naturally as you heard it? Did I read the story and you go, oh, you know what? I'm like that guy. I'm like that. I'm like that guy. Or did you go, oh, yes, like Peter, I've left, I've left so many things to follow you, Jesus. So what am I going to get? Oh, that's so comforting. So comforting. A hundred times more in this present age and then eternal life and probably lots of other treasure in heaven and stuff because that's what he promised to this guy. He'd sell everything he had and follow him, right? See, that's what, that's, that's how I've always read the story. Since I've, since I was, you know, 15, I get, you know, got my Bible and I've read the story, I don't know how many times, and I always read it like there are people in the world who are this rich young man, but then there are people like me who followed Jesus and have left many things for Jesus' glory. And so therefore, the, the meaning of this passage essentially for me is Jesus wants to comfort me that those things I've walked away from, that I'm not going to fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. And in the age to come, eternal life, right? It's a very comforting passage. I think that totally misses the point of the passage. I don't, I, I don't think, I think, I think if you identify with Peter, it's because you're meant to identify with both main characters. You ought to identify with the rich young man, and hopefully if you're already a believer, maybe you'll identify also with Peter to a certain extent. But in reality, you know, working through this passage this week, I think I have more similarities with the rich young guy than with Peter, frankly. And I think that's probably true for most of us. And one of the things that I've found over, over time is um, that when I read a passage in the Bible that I have missed the point of all the times I've read it before and that terrifies me, Here's what I found. That is an extremely important passage to get to the bottom of for my own spiritual well-being and for who I am and for who we are and for who Christ's church is and so on. So will you concentrate with me while I try to unearth this for a few minutes? By a few, I mean several. So, okay, if you skip Easter, the last three weeks I've been doing sort of a— impromptu sub-series on this. That is, true Christian greatness is a race to the bottom. Now, in order to really race to the bottom, remember last week, to race to the bottom, you've got to— you don't remember it. That's, fan that's really uncomforting. You've got, you've got to trust like a kid. Remember Jesus said, if you will not receive the kingdom of God like a little kid, you will not enter it. So to race to the bottom, really, to get the motivation necessary, you've got to trust like a kid. Now, how are you going to do that? And what I tried to say last week that I want to say— more this week is we cannot trust like a kid in the Savior until we stop trusting our other saviors. And I think that that's what the passage on divorce and the passage on the rich young ruler around the passage about trusting like a kid are talking about. And last week I said the passage on divorce really is a shot at our idol of freedom. We have great hopes in the potential that can be gained by our freedom if we leave our options open so that we can, we can do whatever we need to do to approach happiness. We can't have our possibilities restricted because then we'll miss out on great things and our, our possibilities of us being coming, becoming happy will decrease significantly, right? So we need our freedom. Even if it's freedom to the extent of undoing a covenant in which God makes two people one flesh together, right? Even to that extent. But this week, it's, this, it's basically the same idea, different idol. That in order to— 
In order to enter the kingdom of God, we have to realize that it's just about, it's just as much about what we stop trusting in as what we, as who we start trusting in. Does that, does that make sense? In order to, in to enter the kingdom of God, to trust like a little kid, to race to the bottom, it has as much to do with what you stop trusting in as what you start trusting in. It, it will ultimately do no good to on some level trust in Jesus for your salvation if you don't also stop trusting in wealth or freedom for your salvation. Because ultimately, the weeds of wealth and freedom will choke out the plant of the gospel. You will turn back. Which is, of course, the third seed in chapter 4, remember? Because I think that this passage teaches that in order to have faith in Jesus, we've got to lose our other religions. You know, 1.1 billion people in the world claim to be non-religious. 1.6 billion are categorized under the religion of Islam. 2.2 billion are identified as Christians. But I'll just tell you, friends, something north of 6 million are consistently practicing adherence to the religion of wealth. And we have got to recognize that putting our trust and hope in wealth is the natural and normal state of the human heart. It is all of our defaults. It's what we default back into. It's what's constantly regrowing. It is normal humanity to put our trust in and our hope in our resources, our wealth, and our things of value. <clears throat> now, Jesus claimed that he was the most valuable thing. He said in this parable in Matthew 13, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in jo his joy went and sold everything that he had and bought that field. Also, the again, the kingdom of God of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. So you see, what, what Jesus is saying is the kingdom, the kingdom of God's objective value is that it is the most valuable thing there can possibly be. Here's the problem. <clears throat> you will only go and sell everything that you have to buy that treasure, to buy that pearl, if you know that. If you know that it's the most valuable thing there is. Because what we do is we confuse the thing we value most with the thing that's the most valuable. That's what we do. It's like, I mean, have you you've watched the Antique Roadshow before? At least snippets of it? And you're kind of like, oh man, how many people walked by that thing and had no idea it was worth $50 million? You know? That card table with folding legs, you know? Like, what? I mean, there are examples all over our lives where we walk by things of enormous value because we are, we can only value what we think is valuable. So we will always naturally assume that what we value most is what's most valuable. And the whole point of this passage is that's totally wrong. That, that what we don't understand about ourselves is that our value structures are completely messed up. And if we ever, 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 ever want to value what's most valuable, we're going to need some information from the outside because we don't know ourselves well enough, we don't know what wealth is well enough, and we don't know Jesus well enough to know what's the most valuable. That's what this passage is all about. And I don't think it's any less relevant for you or for me than for the people who heard it. And there's, there needs to be a warning here because all the people who heard this were religious people. So this isn't primarily something taught to irreligious people. It would apply to them just the same. 
But the fact that the people in this passage were devoutly religious apparently had no effect on their missing the point. That should get our attention a little bit, right? So, what I, for the next couple minutes, I want to talk about three misconceptions that bias this man and the disciples and us from seeing the value of the kingdom of God and Jesus as the king of that kingdom. And then there's a biblical provision to help us overcome that misconception if we'll listen to it. Okay? The first one is that we don't know who we are. We don't know what—here are the three. I'll give you the three up front. We don't know what we are. We don't know what wealth is, and we don't know what Jesus is, okay? The first one is, we don't know who we are, and the remedy of that is that God gives us the law. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, If we don't have a crystal clear picture of who we are, then there's no possibility of knowing what we ought to value, right? In order to know what's most valuable to us, we have to have a crystal clear picture of what fundamentally we are, to know how the interaction of value could even possibly work, right? We don't know what we are, right? I can give you a hundred examples about my dog and what he values and how he doesn't understand he's a dog. And if he understood he was a dog, his whole value system would be changed. <laughs> but there's two things that this passage reveals about our misconceptions about ourselves in the sense that we are like this, this rich young man. And that is that we have a profound lack of self-knowledge about our goodness. And we have a profound um, amount of lack of self-knowledge about our gods. What is our hearts really value and really worship? So, for example, this guy comes up and he falls at Jesus' feet and he says, um, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus responds, why do you call me good? There's no one good except God alone. Now, lots of people fool with that passage a little bit and go, why would Jesus say that? Maybe he didn't think he was— No. Here's what what those verses mean. Jesus apparently thinks it is safer spiritually to assume that he is evil than to assume there's such a thing as a good person. That's the logic of that that rebuttal. It is safer spiritually for this man to come up to him and— it would have been safer for this man to come up to him and assume that he was sinful— because he probably doesn't know he's the son of God. He's a rabbi. He comes up and says, rabbi. He should assume rabbis are, are evil because there's no such thing as a not evil person. It would be safer for this guy to have come up and said, not so good teacher. What should I do to inherit? Or, or just teacher. It's very uncommon in the ancient world to see a reference to rabbi, to good rabbi. It's just rabbi. Because most rabbis knew better than to accept that title. And what he's saying is, is that the problem with saying good teacher is that you're now opening up to the possibility that there are, there is such a thing as a good person. The minute you believe there is such a thing as a good person, who is going to be within that category? Me! (laughs) Right? The minute there is such a thing as the category of good people in the world. Do you think I'm going to be able to come up with some logic by which I should be included in that group? Of course I am. So if you even allow for the theoretical possibility that there is such a thing as a person already good enough to receive eternal life from, the, from God, it, the minute you allow for that category, you're in it. You've already lost. So in order to even have the possibility to know what we are, we have to recognize we cannot have a category for good people. 
We can have a relative category for good people that, you know, kind of says, you know, like, well, you know, this person is nice. But that's why we have all these other English adjectives like compassionate, caring, sacrificial, nice, philanthropic. There's lots of adjectives that you can use that will not confuse the issue of what is at the heart of a human being, which is not goodness. Bentness, brokenness, self-centeredness, selfish ambition, vain conceit, not humility. The desire to be a god, little g. And big g, if we could get it. And so Jesus just starts out with this. He's like, listen, I just, I'm just going to tell you straight up. Your whole conception of goodness and your inclusion in it is just screwed up. And so he reads him the, the last five of the Ten Commandments with one of them missing, but he sticks one in there, which is kind of funny. So he says, um, is it up there? Yeah. He says, okay, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now, the, the interesting thing there is, do not defraud is not part of the second half of the Ten Commandments. That's the only one that's not. And Jesus leaves out the covet one. Because the covet one is, is I, th I think the reason is because the covet one is internal, and he knows how the guy's going to answer. Because he's not self-reflective. This guy doesn't know himself. So why, why even include it? But he says, do not defraud. And this guy's wealthy. And so you could, you could start to put two and two together in here and say, Jesus included that because this guy had defrauded some people in becoming wealthy. Which, in Luke's gospel, we find out he's actually part of the government, and he's wealthy. Now, most people who get wealthy through government You know, there could be a little bit of not quite entirely fair to everybody, right? That's the nature—government's always messy, right? It's just the nature of it. So he, he says, do not defraud the— And then what does this guy say? Done it all since I was a little kid. Done it all since I was a little kid. And Jesus goes, <laughs> okay. Right? Because this guy doesn't understand the nature of goodness, but he also doesn't understand his second area of a lack of self-knowledge, which is just like us, remember I'm saying, is that he doesn't realize what his gods are. He's not fulfilling any of the first four commandments about God being God. And so Jesus just start, let's just start with the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. So he says, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. Right? And the guy leaves sad, right? That's the, that's what happens in the story. Now, now, now think about that. Now think about that. What did Jesus actually say in this verse? Right? He said, right? So, okay, well, bigger than that, what happened? Okay, so first of all, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him, right? So it doesn't mean Jesus wasn't looking before, and they've carried on this conversation, and now Jesus finally turns and looks at the man. What it means is, is there is a kind of look that comes over him. A look of interest and strength and power. And it's very clear, and Mark includes it later. Apparently, Peter remembered it years later, that when he looked at this young man, the clear expression of his love for this young man came across. He kind of came out of teacher mode, and he was in— he was in lover mode. He, he looked at this young man, and he, it says he, it, he loved him. And then he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, right? And then what does he say? 
and you will have treasure in heaven, right? And then what? And then come, follow me, right? Now you could say, well, follow me just might mean sort of like you can become a general disciple. Well, wait a second. Jesus is turning this guy into a mendicant, right? He's saying, you, you're going to be, you're, you're going to have nothing, right? That's the prerequisite for being in the small group. That, you see what I'm saying? He's not saying, give something to the poor and then believe in me and then go back to what you were doing. No, he's, he's putting this person in the position of poverty and inviting him to follow him. He, this sounds like an apostle invitation, is what it sounds like. Leave everything and come follow me. So Peter leaves the boats and the family and comes and follow him. John and Andrew, they leave everything and follow him. He's saying, sell everything you have and then come follow me. Right? So what's actually happening in this passage is there's an enormous expression of Jesus' love for this man. There is the promise that anything that he sells and gives to the poor, he will have as treasure in heaven amplified by the glory of God and an invitation to maybe even be an apostle-level follower of Jesus. And what does this guy hear? All he hears is, go sell everything you have. It's unthinkable, and so he leaves. Now, you might ask, how do, well, how do you get, I mean, how can you get inside his head? I mean, how do you really know that's what he, that's what he was thinking, that's what he's hearing? Because that's what everybody hears when Jesus says that. That's what Peter heard. Because the first thing Peter says when they walk away is, okay, we left everything, what are we going to get? It's the first thing he says. And then Jesus doesn't answer his question, right? Because he thinks it's a bad question. Right? He doesn't say, like, he's like, okay, treasure in heaven. What, what are we going to treasure? And what does Jesus say about after death when he answers Peter? All he says is what? To get eternal life. He doesn't say anything about treasure in heaven to Peter at all. Nothing. But that's what Peter's asking about, right? Because he says, we have left everything. We did sell everything to follow you. You just told that guy that if you do that, you get treasure in heaven. So what are we going to get? And he goes, listen. Because of the community of the gospel, whatever you leave in this life, you're going you're to find that you have. Because Christians share, okay? So, yeah, you sold your boat, but there's a hundred Christians that have a boat, and they'll let you use it because Christians will share with each other. If there's real mutual love, you'll find you have everything. And with that, you'll get persecutions. And then, in the end, you'll have eternal life. But he says nothing about treasure in heaven, what that'll look like, how much it'll be, or anything related to that at all, Right? Why? Because Peter hears the wrong thing. All he heard was, if you sell everything and follow me, you'll get treasure in heaven. All he heard was economics. It's the same thing I hear, the same thing we hear. Jesus says, go sell everything you have, then you'll have treasure in heaven, and that's all we hear. Right? If I had asked you in that passage, what did, what did Jesus say to the man? Would you have been able to say all three of those things that were positive, or would you have mostly remembered Jesus told them to sell everything? Because that's the nature of our hearts. We don't know what our real gods are. We can be immense idolaters of money and wealth and freedom and be, have no self-knowledge about it whatsoever. And that's normal human experience. And if we don't know what we are, our values can never reorder and we will always mistake what we value most with what's most valuable. Jesus will not be the one we value most. We will not believe like a kid. We'll never race to the bottom, and the church won't be the church. 
And if Jesus was serious in chapter 10, we may not even enter the kingdom of, of, kingdom of God. Actually, I should probably say it this way. We certainly won't enter the kingdom of God, right? So, when you come to that controversial issue of, is this command for everybody? I think the answer is, is interesting. I think the answer is, is no and yes. It's no in the sense that when you look at Jesus' teaching, it's very clear he does not require everybody to sell everything that they have and come follow him. That's very clear. If you go to um, Luke, I think it's chapters 18 and 19, where Luke tells the story of the rich young ruler. The, the story right after that is Jesus going to see the wee little man, Zacchaeus, right? And does Zacchaeus give everything that he has away? No, does anyone remember how much he gives away? He says half, right? He says, I'll give back everything I've defrauded, pay people back four times as much, which is what the Torah says to do. And he says, and on top of that, I'll take half of everything I have and I'll give it to the poor right now. And what does Jesus say? Salvation has come to this household. This man too is a son of Abraham, which is the best compliment you can get. He is the father of faith. Abraham is the father of saving faith. And so if Jesus says, you are a son of Abraham or daughter of Abraham, you are in, buddy, in spades. Okay? And Jesus turns to this tax collector who everybody hates, who's only given away half of his wealth, plus he's going to make things right with people he's defrauded, and Jesus says, this guy is in. Which he, he said, you know, mainly just to make everybody angry. But also to— Virus database has been updated. So Jesus does not require this. So the, this is a, if the question is, does Jesus require you to get, sell everything you have, give it to the poor in order to become a real Christian? The answer is no. Okay, but— if you come to that, if you hear that question and you're terrified that he could be asking you to sell everything you have and give it to the poor, is the question for you? Well, now it is, right? If, if you don't care if it's for you, if you're like, you know what, whatever, it's his, it's just money, I don't, I don't care, well, then the question's not for you. If you don't want the question to be for you, <laughs> which is me, which is Steve, which is many of us, I imagine, then on some level, in some way, it is for you. It may not be that you need to sell everything and follow Jesus, but it may be that you need to recognize money is an idol. And that something, you need to sell that idol. You need to do whatever it takes so that you do not walk away sad from real faith in the one that's most valuable. Because the only way you'll be able to love what's most valuable is if the thing you value most is the thing that is most valuable. Right? I think we should move on to the second point. Okay, they are roasting the— Oh, wait, no, we got to do this. Sorry, we got to do this one. I, I might skip some other stuff. Um, so here are the tests. We really—you ought to have some kind of test, right? For whether or not this is true of you, right? So here, here are some. If, if these connect with you, it's very likely— that real self-knowledge would be for you to realize that on some level, money and wealth is an idol for you. So first, envy and disdain. Do you find yourself resenting people who have a lot of money? Let's all play. Yes, I do. <laughs> sometimes. Not all the times. That's why it's worded this way. Do you find yourself—you could say, do you find yourself sometimes resenting people who have a lot of money? Anxiety. Do you worry a lot about money? Are you anxious either because you indulge too much and then you're strapped? Or because no matter how much money you have, you never have enough security. 
Most people either have a pleasure or security idol when it relates to money, and both are money idols. And most couples, we learned in the Dave Ramsey class, have one of each. (laughs) Which is so fun. Third is bias. Do you have a clear bias towards people with money? Does someone's socioeconomic class matter to you? Does it matter? Here's the answer. Of course it does. (laughs) Of course it does. Unless you have, unless you've convinced yourself that it ought to matter to you because people in higher socioeconomic classes are better than other people because they're, they have more education, they're more talented, and you just go ahead and go vote Republican. Or you are the person who thinks, who really has really deceived yourself into believing you really don't care because you don't see color and you don't see race and you don't see economic class. You're totally free of all that and you're that deluded, you just go ahead and go vote Democrat. The fact is, of course you do. Of course I do. What do we see? You know, we see gender, attractiveness, money in five seconds on everybody. Right? Maybe not. Are you a spender or a miser? Are you too prone to shop and buy things in order to feel good? Does money buy you happiness? Right? Or on the other hand, are you stingy, always trying to hold on to your wealth, even when you should be generous? Or another one. A couple of moms actually came and asked me to add this one in. Um, Freeloading. (laughs) Are you looking for somebody else to provide for you? Do you not respect other people's work in order to acquire their wealth? So that you just go, oh, my parents can spend more money on me. All my friends can spend more money. All my parishioners can spend more money on me. This is, I mean, this is, this is a hard one for me, frankly. Do you have the gift of receiving like I do? <laughs> or fawning and flattery. Do you become someone else when you're around somebody with power and wealth? I don't know about you, I have to, before I meet somebody important or wealthy, I have to take a moment with myself and say, okay, I'm about to be this person. I'm going to become an idiot if I'm not careful. So he's just a guy and just treat him like a guy or a girl, whatever, right? And it will, see, so do I, well, if I have to stop myself and go through a mental exercise to not be that, I probably still have the problem, right? So, there it is. The second is, our second misconception is we don't know what money is. So the first, for the first one, we don't know what we are. We need the law. We need God's law to tell us what's right and what's wrong so that we know when we don't live up to it, we know ourselves that we're broken and lost. The second is we don't know what money is. And for that, we need the Bible's wisdom. We need the Bible to tell us what money is. Now, some of you have come here this morning and you're already cynical about this because you know that I'm probably going to quote a verse that says something like, money is the root of all evil. Right? Yeah. So th- that's, that's not actually what that verse says. But here's, the, here's what I want to tell you. One of the things that the Bible says very strictly and over and over and over again about money is that money or wealth is to be simultaneously enjoyed and distrusted. Wealth is to be simultaneously enjoyed and distrusted. It is both your friend and your enemy. It is both a blessing and a curse. It is what allows you so many material things that are given by God for your enjoyment, and it is what will destroy you 
and turn you away from God such that you will take the things that he gave you because he loves you and use them as ends in themselves in a way to spurn the God who offered them to you. Money is to be both trusted and distrusted, enjoyed and looked at very carefully. I want you to see that these are right next to each other in the Bible in a number of places. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6. It says, but this is Paul writing to this young pastor, Timothy. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we could take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Doesn't mean that's all we'll have, but that's all we need to be content. People who want to get rich fall into temptation to a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's what the verse really says. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith, have pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Now, right next to that, in the same chapter, it says this. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. Did you know that was in the Bible? Did you know that's just as much God's revelation as for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life? You, you ha- we have to continually remember because we are constantly being deceived away from this idea. Everything good is from God. He invented everything good. The only thing evil can do is ape off of good things. Wealth and, and beauty and growth and architecture and things of beauty that we, we attain rightfully, those are gifts for, given by God freely for our enjoyment. Then Satan, sin, evil can come in and twist them into greed and avarice and envy, theft, defraud, covetousness. But that's not what money is or wealth is. That in and of itself is provision. It's provision. Who thinks that when when you give your child breakfast, you're doing an evil thing? Why should we believe that God's gift of some wealth would be inherently wicked? No, it's we that are wicked. We take a good gift and we worship it. Which is why we have to simultaneously distrust it. We don't have to distrust it because the wealth is bad. We have to distrust it because the one handling it is bad because there's no such thing as a good person and because we're blind to our idols and because we will always value most thing we think is most valuable, which is usually the thing right in front of our face, which is usually our money. That's about all the time we have for that. Two other things quickly um, about this. Just here's, here's my two-minute pass at a theology of money is that Christian faith also should transform wealth management. What you, what you do with your money when you get converted should radically change. Because if money is an idol, and that's true for everybody, and if the gospel comes in and starts to transform us, what's going to happen with what you do with your money? Something different. 
something different. If you think you've been converted and there has been no change in what you do with your money, this may be a possibility for you to recognize maybe you haven't been converted. Maybe the thing you find most valuable isn't the thing that is most valuable still beneath the surface of professed faith in Jesus because that weed of that idol will choke out whatever faith you've got unless you go weeding right now. And then lastly in this section is um, Christians will embrace voluntary moderation. There's a number of places in scripture that say, that, will, that it doesn't say Christians will stop earning at a certain income. But what it does say is that Christians will naturally, because of the gospel, embrace a certain level of moderation. Now listen, that is not a political statement. Okay? If you think that means something politically, you're assuming your political philosophy onto a passage of scripture. Because in the Bible, it's voluntary. So you could argue if you have a conservative political philosophy, you could say, it's got to be voluntary. The minute you make it not voluntary, you destroy it. So your government can't make you do it. So you can just go vote Republican. Or you could say, that if that's the right thing to do, and government is about justice, government has to step it, and then you can go and vote Democrat. It's not the Bible passage didn't change. You just assumed your political philosophy onto that passage, and we can have an argument about your political philosophy at Panera. Just call me. And I'm not going to tell you mine. So... But it's important to recognize there is some meaning there where there's a passage in Luke 12 where a guy has this huge harvest and he's already got barns that are apparently full of grain because now he's going to, he's like, let's just tear these down and we'll build just bigger ones. And then I'll stop working because now I have enough wealth for the rest of my life beyond, so I just won't work anymore. I'm not going to contribute anything to the culture and society. I'm just going to live off whatever I've made. And so I'll just build a bigger barn and there it is. And so what does God do? He strikes him dead. He says, you fool, I'll just require your soul tonight. How about that? And you'll die. And, and who knows who, where all your money's going to go. You won't even get to disperse it. Because that is just stupidity. Which, you know, I'm not saying retirement is bad, but that, that verse ought to be included in your theology of retirement, I think, right? I mean, you don't retire to nothing. You retire to some new work for the glory of God, for the good of all people, whatever that is. How are we doing? I probably shouldn't start a whole nother point. Well, I have to because it's about Jesus. It's the Jesus part. <laughs> so the third is, is that we don't know who Jesus is. If we want to walk away like the rich young ruler, if we want to ask the question Peter asked, if we have this problem that not knowing ourselves and not knowing what money is and valuing what we find most valuable rather than what is most valuable. If we want to trust Jesus without stopping our trust in our other gods, we don't know who Jesus is. We don't get it. Right? It says in 2 Corinthians um, 8, 9, where Paul is writing to the church about giving money, he says, I'm not commanding you. You don't have to give, but I wanted to test— I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Right? You usually only hear that when we're doing the offering, right? Well, I'm not telling you you have to give, but if you're sincere at all, let's just compare you with everybody else's sincerity and see who's the most sincere about this. Um, that actually isn't a completely illegitimate— I mean, that is what Paul is saying, that you can tell how sincere somebody is by how they give. But bigger than that is what he's saying is, is that 
This is how money becomes just money. What we, see, here's the thing. We cannot solve this problem by going to the monastery, can we? I'm going to, well, if you gave anything, I'm going to get a paycheck this week. I mean, we're, we're all going to get a pay, but most of us are going to get a paycheck this week, okay? Some income is going to come into our household. Money is going to pass over our hands. We, we can't just say, well, it's an idol, so let's just get away from it. No, no, no. No, it, 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 the disease is not like cancer. The disease is more like overeating. You can't just go, well, I just won't eat anymore. That'll solve that. No more food. I mean, that's not going to really work, is it? This is something you have to handle. So what has to happen is not, we have money, we're just not going to have any. What hap- what's going to have to happen is money has to become nothing more than money. That's what has to happen. It has to lose its glow. Like, you remember the, like, Mr. Duck, in, you know, in the big, his money bin, and it glowed? Like, what has to happen is, it's got to lose its glow for us. It's got to lose its power over us. It has to just be the thing God gave us for our enjoyment and for the good that we could do with it when he puts it in our hands. Right? That's what it has to become. The only way that can happen is if there becomes something greater than it. Right? Like someone who was rich and who became poor so that in our real poverty we could become rich. Something like that. Or another, another way to look at it in this passage is, if you look in the last chapter right before this, there's two places where Jesus says everything is possible for those who believe. So there's the father whose son has a demon, remember that, from like eight sermons ago? And he says, if you can, to Jesus, if you can do anything, please do it. And Jesus goes, what do you mean, if? If I can do anything? Don't you know that anything is possible for someone who believes? Now why is that? Is it just because faith is powerful? No. A few verses later, in chapter 10, he says, with man, this is impossible, like saving a rich man. And everybody in here is a rich man, okay? Everybody, you know that, right? Socioeconomically compared to the whole world, over all of time, we are all extraordinarily wealthy, wealthier than most kings have ever been, okay? We're all wealthy. So we sh- we're interested in this verse. With, with man, this is impossible. With God— Anything is possible. And because anything is possible with God, to the one who believes anything is possible. Now why? Why is that true? Why is it true that because anything is possible with God, because God is powerful, anything is possible for the one who believes? That's only true if God gives his power to the one who believes, right? It's only true if that's the case. So, so God, the powerful one, has to desire and love to work on behalf of the one who believes. Now why is that true? That is only true because something was impossible for God, which comes later in Mark. Remember this? Jesus goes into the garden. He's about to go to the cross. He knows darn well what it's going to feel like. He knows exactly what he's going to go through. And he says, he goes to the little father, and notice that Mark repeats possible twice. He fell on the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass for him, meaning that he wouldn't have to go to the cross to save us. And, and, then, and then it records the prayer, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Yet, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. See, everything is possible. Could God have saved Jesus from the cross? Absolutely. But what would have been the consequence for God saving Jesus from the cross? The loss of us. And so, Jesus went to the cross— And so something was not possible for him. The savable one was unsavable. So that 
the, the fact that everything is possible for God might be true for you. It may be true for you that anything is possible for the one who believes. Do you see? And, it, and the reason Jesus was willing to do that was because he had a treasure. He treasured the will of his Father to save humanity. And the inner Trinitarian love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit was bound together in compassion because he looked at us and loved us. And his treasure was also us. His treasure was you. He treasured you enough that he was willing to sell all of the rest of his wealth so that he could have his treasure in a field. He could have his great pearl, not because we are treasurable, but because he would make us into a treasure. He would make us a treasurable people. He would make us, what Ephesians says, a spotless bride because he is the one who makes treasures and redeems treasures and loves ugly things because he knows how to make them beautiful. Because he sets his affection on them first and then makes them great. And if that's true, if you get that, if it gets in here somewhere, and I love how in the Old Testament it's the bowels. Right? You don't get much deeper than that without being in the cylinder, right? I mean, it's down, it's down here, right? It's, you, that idea, the, the gospel, it's got to get in there, you know? And it's, it's, it's got to, and when it does that, the glow of that money will go. It will just go. And you can have no money, you can have a lot of money, and if you have no money, it's all right. If you have a lot of money, you'll think, what good can I do? What can I treasure that God treasures? What can I make a, into a treasure in the world for the good of all people, for the glory of God? You'll just think that way, and the money will just, some of it will just flow out of your hands generously in good places. Some of it you'll keep and use. Some of it, it, because it won't, it won't be anything but money. And so you can take your money, and you can race to the bottom, and you can serve everyone. Because you'll be able to believe like a kid because when you believe in Jesus, you can stop believing in the other idols. You can value the thing that's most valuable because what you value most is the thing that's most valuable. Because for that to be possible for you, it was impossible for him. For you to have the right treasures in your heart, it took first for him to look at you with love and to treasure you. That is the only way we will not be choked by the weeds of idolatry, whether of wealth or of freedom. It's the only way that we will enjoy waiting on the answer to the question, Jesus, what will we get? Because we're more interested in the one we serve in the creativity of what he might give because we're doing it for the right reasons. Father, we pray that you'd help us um, to love our moms today, since we've culturally set this aside to do that. We pray, Father, that you would help us as a people to grow free of our idolatry to, to freedom and to wealth. We pray that we would be able to value what is most valuable, that we would see you as the one who became poor 
to destroy our poverty, that you are the one who had all the freedom who became a slave so that we could become free from our slavery to sin. You are the one who has called us to believe and follow you like a little kid. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to believe that so strongly that we could race to the bottom and that we could love and sacrificially for others and that we would serve them out of humility. Help us to become the kind of people you want us to be, not out of guilt, but out of joy because we see the gospel. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.